I want to begin tonight by praying again uh, for the situation in Ukraine. And it struck me today, I was talking to a friend of mine, Mark Drake. Mark and Sarah are sitting back there, and they have friends who live there. And some of the family has fled, and they're in Germany, and some have stayed, and the one is serving in the military there. And, and Mark said something on the phone this afternoon that really hit me. When, when you have family there, it really hits you in the gut, which struck me. We have family there. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in the country of Ukraine. And uh, I want to lead us in prayer. And Sarah posted something on Facebook. I want to center some of our requests on on the people that they know there. Uh, And I'm doing that on purpose so that when we see the news feeds on our phone or we're watching the news, we remember that these are real people with real names. These are souls These are people who God loves and cares for. And so would you join me as we pray? Lord, we want to uh, pray for Oksana and her family. Lord, we pray that you would provide resources, food and water for stamina and hope. So many are losing hope and they're tired and they're not eating. Lord, for those who now have fled and, and now they're all of a sudden refugees, and in many cases they're not accepted or they can't get the care they need. And Lord, thank you for believers who are, who are stepping up and reaching out and caring. Lord, we pray for their son Max, who serves in the Ukraine army. We pray for his protection, his health, and good rest. We pray for Sophia and her family in Germany that their visas were miraculously be processed Sooner than later, Lord, give them patience as well. And Lord, for us, many of us are asking what we can do to help, and you call us to pray and to care. And and so, Lord, would you prompt us in practical ways as well when we see a need to meet that need, all for your glory and your honor. Lord, in the meantime, would you charge us up with living on mission for you, looking for opportunities to present Christ to those um, here around us who are unsettled as well. Lord, now as we look into your word, we don't want to just glance at it. No, we want to see it, we want to study it, and we want your word to minister to us, to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to equip form us, and ultimately to change us. So, Lord, we give you this time of worship now. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, let me just give you an example of how someone who's been coming to Edgewood, Carla, is seated over there, and she made a quilt, and this is before all this happened, and it's a blue and a yellow quilt, and she didn't even know why she did that, and uh, Mark and Sarah, we're going to get that to you and your friends come here as a way that we can come alongside. When I was around 10 years old, my grandma gave me a bunch of unused stamps, and she told me to hang on to them, because at some point, they'd be worth a lot of money. So get this. For the past 50 years, I've known I've had them in a file, but I never got around to checking on their value until this week. 
Now, thinking this would be a good sermon illustration and hoping that I could help pay off the mortgage on our building expansion, (laughs) I asked Marie Guyton, our new office manager, to do some investigating for me. I could barely wait to hear what her investigation uncovered. I kept peeking into her office to see if she had finished yet. Well, when she was finished, she brought me into her office. She shared the news with me. Most of my stamps are now worth 20 cents. (laughs) However, one stamp is worth a lot more. It's a value of $1.50. I guess I'll put them back in my file and check again in 50 years, right? Well, last weekend, because of the situation in Ukraine, we called an audible and we broke from our series in the book of Acts and we went verse by verse through Psalm 46 in a message called, Be Still and Know That He Is God. We're reminded of this truth that no matter what happens, you and I can rest in God's promise, in His presence, and in His power. And if you missed that service, we have extra CDs that are available at the resource kiosk, or you can watch the full service on our app or on our website. And I want to invite you now to turn to Acts chapter 24, and we're going to see how Paul had been stamped as a revolutionary seditionist. You see, after Paul providentially survived the plot against him, Remember, his unnamed nephew spoke up. He was taken to Caesarea where he was held as a prisoner in Herod's palace until he came face to face with a governor and he had to face the results of an investigation. Here's what we're going to learn today. When your faith, when my faith is challenged, let's defend it cheerfully. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 1 of Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So Ananias and a contingent of other leaders, religious leaders, they travel from Jerusalem to Caesarea and they want to present the results of their investigation against Paul. You see, Paul was a high value target. And so they employed a spokesman. We're given his name here, Tertullus. The word spokesman is, actually it's more like an orator. His job was to handle the case. We could call him a professional pleader. He's a prosecuting attorney. And in the front half of verse 2, we read, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus, notice, began to accuse him. That word accuse means to condemn by incriminating. Would you notice here, Tertullus turns on the charm. He ratchets up the flattery. He even promises brevity, something I would never do. So in verses 2 through 4, we read this. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, so he's speaking to the governor, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent 
Felix, he's really laying it on thick, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Well, that phrase, much peace, means to be superlatively prosperous and peaceful. The word foresight could be translated as providence, which has given the governor way more credit than he deserves. The attorney continues. He calls him most excellent Felix. It's the idea of him being majestic and mighty. Tertullus celebrated all the reforms Felix made. Notice, every way and everywhere, which is certainly not true, because Felix actually maligned and mistreated the Jews. And so when Tertullus recognized Felix was getting as antsy as an Edgewood member when the sermon goes along, would you notice what he says here? He promises not to tie up his day. He says, hey, governor, I'll be brief. So he turns up the heat. Look at verses 5 and 6. He gets right to the point here. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So he's raising four different charges against Paul. We could summarize them with four different words. The first word would be sickness. He's calling Paul a plague. He's saying Paul is a pestilent fellow. Let's bring it into our culture. It would be like saying, Paul, you're ground zero for COVID. Because you spread sickness to everyone. Now, this was a serious charge. Because Felix assassinated anyone who caused him trouble. He's not done. The second word is schism. He accused Paul of spreading the deadly virus of dissension. He claimed about Paul that he stirs up riots. I like what Vance Havner was fond of saying. He said this, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. (laughs) Notice how we use the phrase, among all the Jews throughout the world. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? By the way, would you like some free relational advice? Free marriage advice? Avoid using phrases like you always or you never. Uh, You're welcome. Okay, number three, (laughs) sedition. Next, Paul was accused of being the ringleader of the Nazarenes. The word here for sect is where we get the word heretic. And so Tertullus is calling Paul the apostle a heretic. That's a serious charge because Rome did not tolerate any new religions. He calls it the sect of the Nazarenes, which no doubt was delivered with a sneer on his face. You see, Nazareth was a place of derision. Perhaps you remember John 1.46, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good Come out of Nazareth? Well, on top of that, the Jews had spread a rumor that Jesus was born in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem, which meant he could not have been the Messiah. So to say, Paul, you're the leader of that heretic group, the group called the Nazarenes, that was quite a charge. 
Well, they're not, he's not done. Number four, sacrilege. He now says to the governor that Paul profaned the temple. Now, to contaminate the temple was a serious charge. That takes us back to previous chapters where Paul was accused. He didn't do it, but he was accused of bringing Gentiles into Jewish-only areas. Now, Tertullus landed his argument by appealing to Felix to do his own investigation. I'm in verse 8. Check it out. Here he says, by examining him yourself... You will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9 records loud amens. I picture a group of Jews sitting in the back just amening. They affirm that all the things were so. By the way, if you ever wonder if you should say amen in a sermon, go ahead and say it. I like it. Thank you. But if I have to beg for it, it doesn't count. It should be natural, though. So we can learn a lot here. So Paul's just getting clobbered, right? Four charges. Most of us would be like, we'd either be on the defensive or we'd be angry. But would you notice Paul's tone of tenderness? His attitude of respect when responding to these charges. See, when your faith is challenged, friends, and it will be, and it has been, and it will continue to be, make sure you defend it cheerfully. And we see that in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, now it's Paul's turn. Paul says this, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, I wonder if he chose the word cheerfully to connect with Felix. Felix's name means happy. The word cheerfully means positively delightful, with good cheer, with gladness. That takes me to 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, comma, with gentleness and respect. You see, Felix had served as governor for over six years, so he would understand Paul's predicament. The word for defense has the idea of giving evidence. It's the word, perhaps you've heard this word, apologetics comes from this word. It's defending our faith, giving reasons for what we believe and why we believe it. So I see eight ways here that we can emulate Paul's cheerful defense when our faith is challenged. Number one, clarify what is true. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Paul says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. See, he's answering those charges. Either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So, friends, when speaking with someone, they probably have some misconceptions about what you think, what you believe. Take the time to clear those up. Do it cheerfully. Number two, confess that you're a Christian. Don't be undercover 
about it. Like Paul, it's important to identify yourself as a follower of Christ. We see that in verse 14. Paul says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way. Now, Paul is identifying himself with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul's saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So, he's not undercover about it. He's not a Christian chameleon who changes what he looks like and how fits into different groups. He doesn't want anybody really to know what he believes. No, he's not like that at all. Question. Would people say you are a follower of the way based on what you say and how you obey? Would they go, oh, yeah, he, yeah, he follows Jesus. I know that. I can tell. I work with him. I see him there. He's my neighbor. Number three, notice what Paul does. Base your beliefs on the Bible. In the second part of verse 14, Paul declares this. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Here's what Paul's doing here. He's affirming the unity of the Old and New Testaments. He is showing his belief in the Bible as the final authority. He's also showing how Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So in that sense, Paul was not a former Jew. He was a fulfilled Jew. Number four, exhibit hope in God. Friends, wouldn't you agree we live in a world without much hope? Especially now. Paul publicly proclaimed the source of his hope. Look at verse 15. Having a hope in God. Number five, speak of heaven and hell. Last part of verse 15, Paul unashamedly, remember, he's speaking to the governor, the one who's holding his life in his hands. And he says, I believe in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. See, this life is not all there is. There is a literal and eternal heaven and eternal and literal hell. This hit me this week. I had the privilege of doing two funerals. I did, another, I did one this morning and one on Thursday. Both members of Edgewood. Both strong followers of Jesus Christ. Both women who were born again. We don't have to say, well, I hope they made it. I wonder if they made it. We can say, we know they're in heaven. Why? Because they trusted in the full and final work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. So make sure you don't shy away from that, that there is a heaven, there is a hell. Number six, cultivate a clear conscience. The Christianity offers a clear conscience through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Number seven. We might not think of this right away, but develop a spirit of generosity. See, if you have a generous heart, you're going to stand out in a world that's all about me and mine and, and, and trying to get when when we're a people who give 
Look at verse 17. Paul went out of his way to provide compassionate care for those in need. If you'll recall, in the book of Acts, he's way up in Macedonia. He takes an offering from Gentile Christians, and he wants to take this offering way over to Jerusalem, Jewish background believers in Jesus. Why? Because a famine was going on. So Paul believed in the power of generosity. He says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Listen, when you practice the value of giving, people will know you're living for the Lord. Uh, Sheila Kershak, who's sitting over there, uh, heads up our children's ministry. And I saw her today, uh, early afternoon, she was coming in with bags of candy. And I said, wow, it's Easter already? I was hoping she was going to give me some. She didn't. And she said, no, this candy is for the kids. We're going to celebrate with them. So in the first through sixth grade, Sunday school, that's during the nine o'clock hour on Sunday, they sponsor two Kenyan children. Let me rewind. These are our kids sponsoring children in Kenya through one of our newest Go Team partners, Fishers of Men Ministries. Here's why Sheila was celebrating with them. They raised, these are children, first through sixth grade, $217 just in the month of February. Yeah, that's generosity. And finally, we see from this passage, root your faith in the resurrection. Don't leave out the resurrection because without it, friends, Christianity crumbles. Listen to how Paul put it in verse 21. This one thing I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, I'm on trial because of the resurrection. That's not what Tertullus said. That's what Paul said. See, when Paul was put on trial, he could cheerfully point to evidence for his faith, and he could communicate that. I came across a paraphrase of how Billy Graham would often end his messages when he was preaching behind the Iron Curtain. And I wonder if he preached this in Ukraine. I'm not sure about that. This is a paraphrase. Many people today claim to be Christians. Do you Claim to be a Christian. Ah, that's an easy claim to make, he said. Well, what about you? Are you a Christian? Do you trust Jesus? Are you following him? How many of your friends and coworkers, your family and neighbors would look at you and say, well, yes, he or she is a Christian. And then he asked this question. Oh, it's a good question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Whoa. The only evidence that would count to convict you would be the way you live. And then he asked some questions. What if the authorities searched your vehicle, your house? Would they find anything incriminating? What would they find if your bank statements were brought before the court? What if they looked at your check register? Any evidence of following Christ there? 
Suppose the prosecution subpoenaed a record of the TV shows you watch. I guess now we should add the internet. What would they say about your commitment to Christ? What about your subscriptions or your hobbies? If the people who know you best were called to testify under oath, what would they offer up as evidence? After interviewing your boss, your coworkers, your neighbors, and your family, would the court convict you of being a Christian? Or would they acquit? Would the judge's gavel come down with these words, case dismissed for lack of evidence? As Billy Graham is want to do, want to do, he is not finished. So this is, he continues, so let me ask you again. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, as we continue in this narrative, we see a role reversal. So we start, Paul is on the stand, uh, but now... Felix and his wife are on trial. Paul became the prosecutor addressing Felix, the prisoner. See, when your faith is challenged, defend it cheerfully. Well, let's fill in a little detail about Felix, the governor. If you could have interviewed him on the street, you'd be struck by his rags-to-riches story. He was born a slave. He worked his way up to governor. Historians have described him as cruel, as covetous, and as criminal. Known as an incompetent politician, he was a narcissist and a hedonist who only lived for himself and only for his own pleasures. Interestingly, we read in verse 22, notice this, that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. The way refers to Christianity. A rather accurate knowledge means he had studied it. He had looked into it. Now, perhaps he had learned about Christianity from Philip because we know that Philip now has moved to Caesarea. You can read about that in Acts 8.40. Verse 23 tells us Felix procrastinated on deciding Paul's case. And so he gave orders to keep Paul in custody but he allowed freedom for his friends to visit. So let's pick up the narrative now. Now we're in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So let's do a little backstory about Drusilla. Here's the best way to understand her. Drusilla, think Cruella de Vil. Does that help? little play on her word, on on her name, right? Drusilla. She had a religious background, while Felix did not. Listen to her family background. She's the daughter of King Agrippa, who had killed the apostle James, and because of his pride, was eaten by worms and died. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, executed John the Baptist. Remember, took John's head off. Her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who butchered babies in Bethlehem. Her family, extremely dysfunctional and deviant, 
Her family expressed open hostility toward Christ and toward Christians. Historians tell us that she was extremely beautiful. When she was 16 years old, she married a Syrian king. But when Felix saw her on Instagram, wait, that's not in there. When, when Felix heard about her, get this, Felix wanted her for himself. And so he hired a sorcerer to seduce her. Felix then took her as his third wife, even though she was still married to the king. Okay, that's who Paul is now speaking with. And would you note, they heard him speak. What did he speak about? Faith in Christ Jesus. He just didn't talk about this nebulous kind of faith, have faith. And no, he talked about the faith in Christ, or more literally, faith into Christ. He no doubt told Felix and Drusilla about who Christ was, why he came, what he accomplished through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Everything sounded intriguing until Paul decided to preach a three-point sermon. Sometimes people say, hey, why do pastors always preach three-point sermons? Where do you find that in the Bible? Uh, It's right here. What we're going to see here is Paul had no interest in flattering Felix. Instead, he took the propositional truths of Christianity and he made them personal, really personal. Notice verse 25. Here's the approach Paul takes. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control. Remember how they're living? And the coming judgment. And so Paul dialogued with them. He presented arguments to them to get them to ponder their own situation. He presented a logically compelling case using what we could call the moral argument to appeal to their consciences. So let's break it down. Righteousness, that literally means the state of being right or upright. God's standard is for us to live up to his righteous expectations. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Secondly, self-control. So when Paul was reasoning about righteousness, he was speaking about character, about who we are before God by bringing up self-control. Well, now he's talking about conduct, character, who you are, conduct, how you're living. You have noticed, haven't you, that men and women can control almost anything but themselves? See, in short, we are sinners, that's our character, who sin, that's our conduct. And our problem is summed up, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Felix and Drusilla are getting very fidgety at this point because it was their practice to indulge in every temptation they saw, including adultery. Number three, 
Paul says there's a judgment to come. The word coming means impending. Literally, it's translated like this. The judgment, the one coming imminently. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist referred to the wrath to come. So to fall short of God's standards and to live only to please oneself leads to judgment. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So we must always start with who God is. He and he alone is righteous and holy. Well, then we see what we are. We are unrighteous and we're unable to control ourselves and our sins. And then we're left to ponder where we're headed. We're headed to judgment unless something happens. Friends, write this down. Get this. This is the core of what I want to say tonight. The only way good news becomes great news is in the context of really bad news. Listen, you won't have any desire to be found if you don't even think you're lost. You'll struggle with seeing your need for salvation until you know you're a sinner. You won't want to hear about the way to heaven unless you first understand you are on the highway to hell. Our society sanitizes sin, uses euphemisms, where adultery is redefined as a fling or an affair. Immorality is simply an alternative lifestyle. And murder is cloaked behind the right to choose. While there are some people who refuse to embrace Christianity because they have a lot of questions about it. Here's what I think. Many know enough to believe, but they don't want to surrender their lives to Jesus. They don't want to stop living the way they're living. See, the Bible says sin is pleasurable. That's why we do it. That's not how it ends. Sin is pleasurable, comma, for a season. And then it's not. See, it's not that people can't believe. No, for many people, it's that they don't want to. I'll never forget Josh McDowell once said, he's known as a Christian apologist, likes pointing to the evidences for our faith, particularly the resurrection. Josh McDowell said that if he could answer every question an unbeliever could throw at him, he or she may still choose not to believe. Why is that? Oh, because the issue is primarily not intellectual. No, the issue is moral. Frankly, some people don't want to believe and receive Christ as Lord because they don't want to stop living the way they've been living. Do you agree with that, church? Yeah. According to John 16, verse 8, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's very similar to the sermon that Paul preaches. And I wonder, some of you may be experiencing 
that uncomfortable, terrifying conviction of sin right now? If so, hold on. Because I want you to see that that is a gift from God. So how is all this relevant to us today? Well, number one, righteousness can be received. If you ever wondered how you can get rid of all the guilt that you've done, are you tired of swimming in shame? Well, the resurrection is definitive proof that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as your sin substitute. And when you repent and receive him, he will transfer his righteousness to you. Now that is good news. Number two, Christ can control your sins. Maybe today you're like, I I don't have any self-control. I can't change. I keep doing the same thing. I'm stuck in this cycle. Do you want to be freed from... That lack of self-control in your life, friend, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you. Do you believe that? And number three, <laughs> oh, it's so good. Judgment is fully satisfied. The judgment you and I deserve was put on Jesus. And that's why everything got dark when Jesus was on the cross. Why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he took on all of our horrid, putrefying sins. And he paid the price for all of our sins. He took the judgment that you and I deserve. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So get this, our three main problems are solved when we're saved by the Savior. Our past, forgiven, and we're declared righteous. In the present, we are given power to overcome our lack of self-control over sin. And when we trust Jesus, we will not face future judgment. Our past, our present, our future is all secured. Is that not good news, church? Yeah. Now, after hearing about all those topics, if Paul had an altar call, Felix wouldn't have come. Notice what we read. The Bible says he was alarmed. This powerful man trembled. And was thrown into fear. One version said he was terrified with fear. Another refers to Felix as frightened outright. Psalm 119.120 provides some insight into how Felix was feeling. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I'm afraid of your judgments. Now I believe he was fearful, frightened, and fascinated. Maybe interested in what Paul was saying. But unfortunately, instead of dealing with the decay in his own soul, he chose to delay his decision. Notice what he says. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll call you back in. 
The word opportunity refers to an opportune time in the future. Here's what he was doing. Instead of action, he was choosing procrastination. Someone said it like this. If vice has slain its thousands and pride its ten thousands, surely procrastination has slain its hundreds of thousands. Felix's mind was enlightened. His emotions were stirred, but his will would not yield. One day when our daughter Lydia was a toddler, uh, this is a parenting fail, I'll tell you that right up front, I put her on my shoulders and I ran around the house with her. And we lived in a ranch. This is when we were living in Rockford. We're running around the house, down the hallways, into the living room. And wherever we had a smoke alarm, I taught Lydia how to push the test button on the alarm. So she'd push the button, and we'd kind of get afraid, and then we'd laugh. <laughs> and then we'd run off and do it again. And while I had Lydia up on my shoulders and I'm running around, I'm thinking, what kind of dope am I? I mean, we got a firefighter back here. So I was doing two things by doing that. Number one, every time we pushed that button, I was wearing down that battery. But here's something even more insidious. I was teaching my daughter to not respond to an alarm. I was teaching her that that's fun. Oh, don't worry about that. Let's just go off to the next one and have fun. Our little game desensitized her to the danger of our house being on fire. I reached out to Lydia this week and I said, Lydia, can I tell that story? She lives in Virginia now. She's like 30. Okay, it's been a while. I still thought I should ask her. I said, Lydia, that was just bad parenting. And I said, what do you do when you hear a smoke alarm now? And I was afraid she was going to say that she laughs. (laughs) Here's what she said. She said, Dad, I'm petrified of them. And I'm like, oh, good. So (laughs) Beth must have reparented her after I did that. So by playing games with something that was designed to protect us, we were adversely affecting its performance and numbing our reaction to it. We were setting ourselves up not to hear or heed its warnings. That's what Felix did. He heard this piercing alarm in his soul. The Bible said he was terrified. He was alarmed, but he turned it off. He shut it down. He was afraid, but he didn't want to give up the way he was living. He decided to delay, but what he was really doing, he was deciding to deny. So when Felix was frightened, interestingly, we read nothing of Drusilla's reaction That's often the case, isn't it? One spouse is spiritually convicted, and the other isn't. One wants to go to church, the other doesn't. Well, verse 26 tells us, while Felix sent for Paul frequently over the next two years, this is really sad, notice what he really wanted. He wanted a bribe from Paul. 
See, remember, Paul brought all this money for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And now Felix is like, Paul, give me some money and I might let you out. Would you note, he left Paul in prison for two years. And he often would meet with Paul and converse with him. Here's what I think happened. Materialism crowded out what really mattered. This showed that money was his master. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, we must all decide which master we will serve because no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Words of Jesus, you cannot serve God in money. In essence, Paul told Felix and Drusilla, let me summarize what he said, you both are wicked and unrighteous, you are without self-control, you'll face the judgment to come. Unless you repent and receive Christ, you'll spend eternity in hell. Sadly, we never read of Felix getting frightened again. He went back to his old ways of seeking pleasure, popularity, and possessions. It's as if the window of opportunity had closed for him. As far as we know, he never did find a convenient time to repent and receive Christ. Let me tell you what happened to both of them. Felix eventually flamed out as governor. He was forcibly removed by Nero... Drusilla met her demise in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted. Her life was taken by the flow of hot lava coming down the mountain. She had an opportunity to have a clean conscience, to break that cycle of family dysfunction. But because she delayed, she met her demise. One reason to decide today is because you have no idea how much time you have left. Do you know it's possible to be shaken and never be saved? To be convicted and yet not be converted? To tremble and never trust? You can be so close to Christ and yet so far away. God gives each of us opportunities to respond to him. It's a dangerous deal, I warn you, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and to put off a commitment, put off a commitment until a more convenient time. Well, I'll just wait a little bit. I want to have fun. I'll, I'll wait until I get married. No, I'll wait till we have kids. No, no I'll wait till I'm retired. No, I'll, oh. Listen, that convenient time may never come, and then you will face the terror of the never-ending volcanic fires of hell. There's another instance in the Bible of someone who is terrified. In Acts 16.29, we read of a correctional officer. After experiencing an earthquake, we read these words, trembling with fear, he fell down. His response was different. Listen to his question to Paul, what Must I do to be what? Saved. And the answer is to not delay, but to decide today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. My family gives me a hard time for two phrases I've recited over the years. Uh, They kind of make fun of me for them. I think they're filled with wisdom. 
One has to do with getting up in the morning. So we have four daughters. I tried to no avail. I failed at this. This is another parenting fail. Here's what I tried to teach our daughters. To not ever use the snooze button when their alarm went off. I failed at that. So then when they would oversleep and I'd be out like drinking my cup of coffee and I'd hear the alarm go off and off, I wouldn't get them up. I'd give them this go-to phrase. If you wanted to get up, you would have gotten up. They roll their eyes and say, Dad, and then run off to school. Well, another short saying I've been known to recite more than a few times is related to getting things done. And this one, they've actually come back and thanked me for. So I'm one out of two on these phrases. Here it is. I would say to them, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. If you don't do it right now, you'll never do it. And now I hear our daughters who are mothers say that to their kids. Makes me smile. (laughs) I should have cited Felix and Drusilla as examples of this. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't be like this couple who failed to respond when they had opportunity. This, today, right now, might be your opportunity. To delay today may mean your heart will decay tomorrow. Hebrews 4, 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen to the plea of God, Isaiah 32, 11. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. I'm reminded of the story from C.S. Lewis of three demons. They're sharing ideas about the best way to keep people from going to heaven. The first demon has an idea, and he says, I know. Let's keep them from going to church. Second one said, that's pretty good, but I have a better idea. Let's keep them from reading the Bible. The third one flashed an evil grin and said, I've got something even better. Let's just tell people... They have plenty of time. Plenty of time. An older pastor often said this phrase, repent the day before you die. When someone asked, but we don't know the day when we'll die, he replied, then repent today. Friend, you are stamped with sin, and you are also extremely valuable to God. Oh, if you've not done so yet, would you repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord right now? Would you bow your head? You could pray this prayer along with me quietly. Lord Jesus, I know you are righteous, and because I'm an unrighteous sinner with no self-control, I deserve judgment. You are the Savior who died in my place, and then you rose again on the third day. And I want to respond to you right now. By repenting, surrendering my life to you. I ask you to come into my life to forgive me for my sins, to make me righteous, to give me self-control, and to keep me from judgment. I confess you are the resurrected Christ, and I believe you came to save me from my sins. Now, right now, today, this moment, I receive you by faith. Make me into the person you want me to be. Help me to follow you faithfully and help others to do the same. In the name of Jesus, I pray.
Amen.